Hey folks, this is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. Even in the way, way northern latitudes, there is no denying the Earth's 23.5 degree tilt on its axis and our relationship with the sun. Spring has now sprung. In the spirit of holding on to winter just a little bit longer, we struck up a conversation with newly minted Olympian, APU skier, and Alaskan native Tyler Cornfield. On the competition side of things, Cornfield is both a sprint and distance national champion, and he raced his first career World Cups this past season. But maybe more importantly, Cornfield has been helping bring cross-country skiing to rural Alaskan villages for the past several years. Okay, so here's Cornfield, who we called on May 3rd. Well, how's Anchorage? Um... It's all right. It's not great. Normally, uh, we I think we rely on the springs to like re-motivate us for the year, and this spring has been not too fun. Like rain, like rainy and drizzly. Yeah, like rainy and wet, and uh, the crust skiing hasn't hasn't appeared yet, which is uh, strange. So yeah, we're all at least I'm struggling with it, but um, yeah, hopefully it'll go away soon and. It's only a matter of time before we get back into the swing of things with regular training. So, For people who don't necessarily know you, a little bit of background. Where are you from, how old you are, and who you train with? Where I'm from, I'm from Alaska, born and raised in Anchorage. I went to school, college in Fairbanks for four years, and I've been training with APU in Anchorage for the past uh, five years, I believe, or at least since 2013, so... Ever since we've kind of known you, um, I think originally you kind of came onto the national stage as this guy can really sprint. And you have definitely, you know, in five years, you've morphed into an all-round skier. The big question would be, can you talk a little bit about that evolution? Yeah, it's funny. I've always, I mean, I've always performed slightly better in sprinting, if not much better in sprinting. But in the back of my mind, uh, I've always yeah, thought of myself as an all-arounder. Um, not many people, I would say, did. So, But my coach has always encouraged me to go for all races and all distances, especially being in college, um, trying to make NCAAs. It's much more distance-based. So um, I made NCAAs my freshman year, and so I did have something um, in me that I could ski distances. But in the last couple of years, I trained quite a bit differently in college. I trained uh, much less volume and uh, just, yeah, getting through it, I guess, making it work with school. And so the volume wasn't up even in the summer. I just, that wasn't my focus. And so I think that naturally led to better sprint results. And then once I joined APU, Flora kind of looked at my training base and was like, all right, if you want to achieve big things, you've got to have to, you have to get your base up no matter what, if it's for sprinting or if it's for distance racing. And it was kind of like a long-term deal. I don't think the first year was the year before Sochi. So I think our team in our, in our mind, I think we thought that we could make Sochi or Falun the next year, but in reality, it was just going to take a really, really long time of putting in a lot of hours. And so 
yeah, we increased our hours by 300 in two years and um, has been pretty consistent ever since. And my sprinting has, it's just starting to get back to where it was before uh, when I was in college. Um, so that took a little while to get used to, but uh, the yeah distance racing has come up with it. So we we keep anybody who visits the house who kind of skis or just like makes a good margarita or something. <laughs> um, we measure their height on the wall. Tyler is still number one on on the the height chart. <laughs> so uh, how tall are you? Uh, yeah, six two. Yeah, oh, you're only six two. Oh my gosh. Okay, God, you look like you look like you're about like six five. Yeah, I look bigger because. Yeah, the the chest makes it. Um, I yeah, I, I'm a pretty big guy, like one ninety five on a good day, and uh, so yeah, the, the sprinting leads to I, that kind of body leads to probably being a better sprinter. Um, but the way skiing works, it doesn't work like that. It, right. There's so many variables, and um, whether it's luck on the day that I benefited at nationals from having fast conditions. I don't know, but uh, I've also had good races in slower conditions. So, uh, yeah, um, I try not to think too much about my limiting uh, abilities and longer distances based on my body because there's nothing much I can do. And All right, so this year, I think by all metrics, appeared to be you know a very successful year for you. You won the 30K classic at nationals and you perform quite well in the in the sprints as well um in anchorage and you went to pyeongchang you know i know this is like making the olympics and being on the world cup has been a long-term goal of yours from the outset of this year is this something that you thought was actually realistic i mean just on your apu team alone you guys are pretty stacked um so last year we finished up in spring series in Fairbanks and I had a pretty good spring series. I was fourth in the 50K and second in or second American in the sprint. And But the fourth in the 50K kind of piqued my interest because I had been racing a lot longer distances. David Norris and I both raced in Europe for a couple of the ski marathons there, uh, double pole races, like the Marshallanga and one in Germany. And... I looked at the team that I thought was going to go to Pyeongchang and the reality of where we are now, the sprint team is really stacked. I, especially for qualifying, I struggle with qualifying or at least I have in the past. I've gotten a lot better this year, but I wasn't that hopeful for making the sprint team going into Pyeongchang. And so I kind of looked at the 50K last year and it's like, all right, let's go for the 30K in Anchorage and try to try to win that uh, I looked a little bit about at the schedule and saw that I really wanted to focus on the race in West Yellowstone uh, 15k classic classic is more my specialty for the distance races so I want to make that that one and then the 30k at nationals to be my big races for the year unfortunately I got sick in November and injured in August and just set myself up to really not perform in the early season and was I don't know some some like 25th in the race at West Yellowstone and kind of down and out um, both mentally and out of the contention for going to Pyeongchang and so 
leading into nationals, I kind of reassessed my situation. I mean, I didn't have a single distance point going into nationals. Kind of had to plan on plan on life not making the Olympics, and so instead, I scheduled to go race in Europe. Um, these uh, ski classic in Austria and um, that was going to be like the the day after I was going to leave the day after the sprint the last sprint at nationals and so but I still kind of in the back of my mind I was like all right I made this big goal I want to make the Olympics I'm going to push everything into performing my best over U.S. nationals I've put a lot of focus into this 30k and I think I, I can still do well maybe not win it, but I can still do well. And so, um, yeah, we kind of peaked for nationals and then nationals went really well. And then uh, I still had that ticket over to Europe that I had already bought and planned. And so I went to Austria and instead got to race my first World Cups in Slovenia uh, the following weekend. So, uh, yeah, I mean, going back to whether I had thought that I could do it go to the Olympics for the distance races. Um, I thought that I could, but yeah, I, I mean, I had never even won. I'd never been on the podium in a distance race in nationals or a super tour. So thinking back, uh, maybe it was a little naive, but I mean, I guess you're going to have to make those kind of big goals for something like this. You never know what, what's going to happen on the day. I mean, the, the night before the 30K, I mean, it's your hometown. Were you a basket case and like didn't sleep or were you pretty chill and able to relax and sort of focus on the task at hand? <clears throat> the night before the 30K, I didn't. Yeah, it was just any other night. The night after the 30K, that's when I was a bit of a basket case. And that was before the classic sprint, which I still did pretty well there. But yeah, I slept like four hours that night. But before the 30K, I mean, I, I had already made my plan for the year and was pretty happy about um, the fact that I had I had opportunities. I think people get stuck on not having opportunities when when they don't meet a goal. And so they, the, the second half of the season, even if they're in really good shape, kind of just disappears because they, yeah, they don't accomplish something that very few people are um, even allowed to compete in. So I kind of, yeah, once I had that, I kind of was able to sleep at night. You know, your experience in Pyeongchang, was it sort of, a, I, I mean, I know you guys are kind of cloistered in the athlete village and, you know, it, it's very focused on the racing. Not that it was a sterile environment, but there's, you know, there were some good restaurants around, but not a lot of distractions for you guys. You know, what was your experience like, you know, coming out of that and in particular, the type of competition that was there? Well, for me, I've never raced a championship event other than World Juniors or, U or U23s. I've raced two World Cup weekends. So... It was a lot of uh, unexpected things. It was pretty sterile in the athlete village. We, I never got to get out that much uh, because I was an alternate for most of the races. And then um, I got called up in a race that I wasn't expected to race in and then getting ready for the 50K for the whole time. So it was hard. Was, it, was that the 15K skate that you weren't scheduled? I forget off the top of my head. Yeah, the 15K okay. skate I wasn't okay. scheduled for, yeah. And then for the competition, 
I mean, I, I think, yeah, I was a bit shell-shocked trying just looking at these guys. I'm a guy who has watched a lot of World Cup videos and has uh, seen a lot of these guys race a lot of times. And so I had to figure out a way to be confident with what I was doing and why I was there, be confident that I deserve to be there skiing around these guys who, like, everybody's doing something different, but, like, I'm, I shouldn't be copying them. I'm trying to prepare the way that I've always prepared to, for me to succeed. So if Sunbi's out there, like, going my L3 pace on a distance day, like, that would just, like, I don't need to look at that. So I kind of had to put on some blinders and do my best. Um, I definitely, it, it wasn't easy and I think that comes from having very little World Cup experience. It wasn't an easy couple of weeks. The whole experience was amazing, but it was hard for sure. So one of the things I think that, you know, gets a lot of exposure on at least social media is that you have been involved for a while with outreach in um, Alaskan indigenous communities in bringing skiing and cross-country skiing, Nordic skiing to, to those communities. First up, like what, what is your, uh, let me ask, like what is your connection to native Alaskans or indigenous people in Alaska? Yeah. So my mom was uh, born and raised in uh, above the Arctic circle. She was born in Nome actually, but, she was raised in Kayana, and that's where her family originally comes from. Uh, Kayana is a village above the Arctic Circle, uh, 35 miles above it. And in 2010, she started this nonprofit, Skiku, uh, that helped get kids in rural Alaska to experience kind of what my sister and I were allowed to do in Anchorage. A, a big part of our family's life is our, our rural communities in Alaska. My aunt ran the Native Corporation, which is Alaska's divided into these regions. And, and when there was uh, Alaska Native Settlement Claims Act, that kind of gave government funding to Alaskan communities similar to like the Indian territories down in the States. Instead of doing what they did with reservations, they gave it, they put it into corporations, so they built it around business. And so my aunt ran the uh, Nana Corporation, which is the village corporation or the regional corporation from my area in the Northwest for uh, a long, long time. I don't know exactly how long. And then my mother also worked there. So my family is really, really deeply involved in rural Alaska. And so that's kind of how we got started with it. And is there, I, I remember you telling me one time that your grandmother maybe ran a general store. Yeah, so um, actually we've had this general store since 1935. Um, it was a trading post, like back when they traded furs and all that stuff. So it gradually yeah, it was built into this general store. And now my uncle runs it and he's been running it since uh, 2014. So. And where is that? Uh, that's in Kayana as well, which is where my mom is from, uh, called the Blankenship Trading Post. So Okay. Yeah. And is there, what, what's the population of Kayana? I believe it's right around 400 people. 
plus or minus. In terms of service or getting goods in there, is it all at this point, is it most efficient to fly it in or is it an overland route? Uh, definitely flying, especially for the winter. I think they have one barge that goes up the Kobuk River every summer. And so uh, generally everything in there is through a small airplane, um, like a 15-seater airplane, yeah. And did you go there, I mean, as a kid, did you guys spend a portion of each summer up there at all? Yeah, we uh, spent, um, up until I started getting a little more serious in skiing and had to be in Anchorage most of the time, we spent the summers a couple weeks or a couple months up there. My dad had airplanes. Um, he used to be an airplane mechanic, and so we would fly up in his small five-seater plane and make our way up to Kayana. It's not easy getting there, so couldn't get there that often, but we tried to get, especially up there when I was young. Can you talk a little bit about what Skiku does right now? I know, and for me, it's always interesting sort of every year. I know it's spring because if I'm using faster skiers like Instagram account and I'm seeing it's like, oh yeah, there's Tyler and he's above the Arctic Circle somewhere <laughs> teaching kids how to ski. So specifically, like what is the mission for Skiku as it relates to Nordic skiing and how has that kind of played out? Yeah, I mean it's a pretty simple mission. There's a there's a lot in rural Alaska that needs attention to. And so it's kind of like if if we were trying to solve everything, it would be it's too much for us to handle. So our mission is plainly to get kids on snow, uh, trying to integrate skiing back into the culture. It's I mean, transportation in these villages now is primarily through like snowmobiles and four-wheelers and boats, uh, all motor-powered, but it wasn't that long ago that they didn't have those kind of things up there. And so teaching them that this was a part of their culture and it should still be integrated somehow, um, especially when there's snow for most of the year, and getting outside is really, really important. So yeah, plainly getting kids outside and excited to ski and hopefully to live some healthy, long lives. And I, I know, or I think in the past that you guys had had the funding or the capacity to sort of have gear and leave it in communities with a PE teacher or something like that. Is that still part of the program? Yeah, that's a big, big part is getting skis out into the villages. That's not an easy thing to do by any means, but it's arguably easier than convincing PE teachers to take the kids out. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of uh, motivation, commitment to get 40 kids out um, during a PE hour or just 40 kids out in a day. And uh, the way Alaska teachers work, a lot of them come in for a year or maybe two and then leave. And so it's a lot of our program is working with new teachers. We start out the week and they're kind of grumbling, why are you here? Like we need, we have testing, we have all this stuff that, um, yeah, that we normally do. And then we come in and kind of interrupt that. But by the end of the week, they're so excited because this is one of the few weeks that they have the kids 
really engaged because one, the kids want to go out and ski. One of the punishments, which we don't really like, is that if you are bad, if you behave poorly, then you don't get to go out and ski. But that allows the kids to be super focused. And then just by the kids getting outside in the middle of the day, everybody knows that every skier knows that you feel better after that. So convincing the teachers to work with us, even if yeah they're going to be gone next year, that's always the hard part. So one of the big things that we need to do now is getting people in the community that live in the community uh, engaged with our program and uh, they can hopefully motivate the teachers and motivate the kids to get outside a few more months of the year rather than just the one week that we come up. From a sports standpoint, it, and I, I did a bunch of background research on this a while ago, but is, is basketball still kind of king in those communities? Yeah, basketball, I don't really know why. Um, I mean, I understand it's hard to compete with skiing because it can be really windy and cold in these villages. So an indoor sport like basketball, pretty simple. Um, volleyball's big for a few of the other, um, right. like um, mostly, I think, uh, for the girls or the people who can't make the A basketball team, the A squad. But yeah, that's that's always the challenge is how do we, uh, how do we compete against basketball? <laughs> and I know your program is really, it seems like it's more about like wellness and getting kids outside and, fit, and engaging with nature, but you know, through the lens of physical fitness. Is there talk of like, oh yeah, we need to organize some sort of race series or anything like that? Yeah, uh, that has the potential to be a big component. Uh, the problem is it's hard to realize the challenges until you go there. Like it's easy for us even in Alaska to drive to Fairbanks. It's easy for people in the lower 48 to drive to a local town with a ski meet for them they have to fly no matter what like maybe they if the if the village is close there's a few villages that you can that are separated by 10 miles or whatever they can snow machine over but in general you have to fly and that's probably a thousand dollars per person (laughs) which is a little extreme right uh just for a ski race and so that is I mean, I know that getting involved by racing can be huge. That's how I was involved, and that's how we have 400 or more, 600 kids in Anchorage every weekend at high school meets. That's how the majority of Anchorage gets involved in skiing is through high school racing. Uh, But it's a challenge trying to figure out how to make it work up there. But I think we're working on it, Um, yeah, trying to... There, there are already a few races. Uh, a big thing in Alaska every two years, we, it's the Arctic Winter Games. And traditionally, it's like traditional native games. But they also have skiing because we get to race uh, like the Scandinavians, um, the Canadians. Each, each province in Canada has their own team. And then every two years, we come together in somewhere in the Arctic and get to race against each other. Primarily, it's been based, most of the skiers are from uh, the road system in Alaska, so Anchorage, Fairbanks, or the Kenai area. And so trying to get these kids from the Arctic more involved in skiing in Arctic Winter Games is pretty important. And we've already had a few, so. As someone who has been exposed to you know, communities 
you know, north of the Arctic Circle since you were a young kid, and now you're an adult and probably have some perspective. You know, what are some of the challenges that you see or are described to you by maybe your family or you just see, you know, you see firsthand of those communities that are in rural Alaska and are up north and, you know, how they sort of navigate that type of isolation? Well, that's a pretty big question. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I've thought a little bit about it. It's kind of, yeah, it, it's really big. I mean, Alaska, rural Alaska faces a lot of challenges. I mean, it's an amazing place, gorgeous country. Like, the, you have so much freedom to do whatever you want, like miles and miles of rivers and um, snow for snow machining and all these things. But, yeah, the opportunity gap is huge between the rest of the U.S. Um, the rates of suicide is super high, alcohol and drug abuse, uh, lots of smoking, and then healthy living is a challenge because it is really cold and really windy. So getting outside and staying active is really hard but I mean for our program I think we just try to stay with what we are um, trying to do we're trying to get the kids outside and breathing fresh air and uh, hopefully giving them good role models that they can use beyond just the week that we're there I mean it takes a long time to change a culture especially when a lot of the programs that come in tend to come in for a short time, get money to do it, and then leave. And so I think we're trying to be one of the programs that stays stays forever, uh, becomes a part of their culture. I mean, you have to be really careful because, yeah, they, they're used to that. They're used to people coming in and telling them what to do and then leaving and letting them deal with the mess. So uh, yeah, just trying to be stable and let them realize that this can be a really impactful, forceful, positive change in their communities. How long have you have you been doing this for about five years? Yeah, I've been doing it. Uh, th- first year was 2014. Okay. And have you traditionally gone back to the same community or have you changed that up a bit? Uh, I've changed it up a bit. Mostly it's just scheduling when I'm free, but I've been fortunate to go to a lot of villages uh, like Noatak, Shungnak, Norvik, Kotzebue, and then this year I went to Point Hope and Unicleet. I've only been to a few of the villages, a couple, more than once, but that's something that my mom really, really wants me to do is, I mean, they, they definitely remember the people who come back, and so that is really important, but the timing is hard. You need to, right. the spring is really hard for us to, to, after getting done with the ski season to coming back and doing, I mean, ski is harder than on the volunteers. It takes a lot of work, but in the end, it's super, super fulfilling and you get to see a completely different culture that's in the U.S. I think people forget, like, we are in the U.S., but there's this place that nobody really knows what goes on up there you know i i wondered this myself and you know because i don't know if someone brought this up or not they're like oh you know is tyler like the first native alaskan winter olympian and i was like oh that's a great question i have no idea you know for kids in those communities um 
it's and that is yeah i mean it is something that i should figure out it is really cool uh, i was able to go to point hope and unicleat this year and especially in unicleat they already have they've had a they have a long tradition of a ski program and so the kids know what being an olympian means and they were it's amazing what that can do uh, to a kid to be able to meet an olympian to ask how we got there and how to achieve what they want to do. And especially in Unicleat, I mean, they have, they have groomed trails and really? they're, yeah. Um, and they've had an incredibly supportive, I mean, it, what it takes is someone in the community. They've had this teacher who's been there for, uh, over like 10, maybe, yeah, maybe 15 years. And she's been heavily, heavily involved, and and these kids were crazy good. Like they were really good skiers. And I wasn't in the best shape after a long season, but they could stay with me easily. Uh, when we were we went out onto a ski and like on groom trails, it wasn't easy skiing either. Like it's, I mean, it's not like the groom trails that we have come to expect. It's hard skiing, but they were doing really well, and they were all like seventh and eighth graders. And I asked, you know, what are you going to do next year? Are you going to keep skiing? Like, nope, it's basketball season. Now we can be in high school basketball. And so it's, uh, yeah, trying to figure out how to work the system. And another big step for us is how do we get skiing in the schools as a school sport? Right now it's not in rural Alaska. It is in Anchorage. So, yeah, we need to figure that out. Yeah. Do you know the name of that teacher? Nancy Pearson. Wow. That's a cool story. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, I hear that all the time. Like they take, it takes it. We, we call them like parents, you know, like we refer to those people as like the champion or yeah. something. Like it always takes someone to champion a cause to really see something come to fruition. That is, that's a great story. Um, my last question there, what's the funding model? Like how does Skiku make kind of meet their bottom line of funding each year? It takes a lot of funding. Uh, it takes $400,000 for 42 villages, which is a little under $10,000 per village, which is a, a lot of money. And Alaska, we have a lot of really supportive organizations who want to help the health of especially rural communities. A lot of Alaska, we divide it amongst the regional corporations, like I mentioned earlier, where you have the North Slope and the, 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 the places that Skiku serves, the North Slope, the Northwest region, and then the Southwest region. And so within each region, they have support. So on the North Slope, it's really big into oil development. So BP, ConocoPhillips, North Slope Borough, and Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, or uh, Arctic Slope Community Foundation. And then in the Northwest, it's NANA, which is the native regional corporation in the area. And then there's a big mine up there, Red Dog Mine, that uh, mines copper. And then uh, the, health consor- the health corporation in the area, too. And then, yeah, Southwest, same thing, regional corporation, and then the mining, gold mining down there, Donlin Gold. So big help from them. Okay. And so do you guys accept, like, I mean, 
like a regular person like listening to this or like, yeah, I want to th- toss a hundred bucks into the pot. Oh yeah. Is that? Yeah. Okay. I definitely. Um, especially I think a lot of people should look into volunteering as well. Cause we need really, especially if they're a good teacher. Uh, what I've figured out is as a, an elite athlete, I'm kind of separated from, do I remember how to put on my skis when I was five years old or three years old? And like, that's something that it's really helpful because normally we, when we go out there, it's with it, with, it's with a more experienced teacher. And so they can help us help guide us into how to teach young children again, like the basics of putting on skis and, learning balance and stuff like that. So getting people who are really good at that stuff to volunteer, it's really important. And then, yeah, if they want to fund, um, send, send a few checks our way would we, we would really appreciate it. Okay. And presumably you're still skiing this next year. Yeah. I'm planning on it uh, as long as I can, uh, yeah, get back into the swing of things. It's this weather is hard to get back into training, but finding the good, the good snow is, going to be important as normally you guys this time of year it's you you still try and do on snow training up there yeah uh we're i mean i think there's something like six feet at hatcher pass i don't know if that's true but a lot of snow at hatcher pass and so we have tons of more skiing it's just hasn't uh shaped up shaped up to the to the skiing that we want i guess gotcha gotcha um cool all right well nice talking to you yeah nice talking to you and congrats on a great season thank you thanks for listening to nordic nations